0: Give me that. Uh, give me that clicker there, Dave. <laughs> All right. Good morning again, church family. So glad to have you. I do want to remind us. Uh, I know that most of you know, but be praying for the Walser family. We're going to be hosting uh, Melvin's uh, memorial and funeral service here on Tuesday at, at two p.m. And if you want to help with that meal for the, the family, Becky, uh, early this morning. And, uh, or Heather? <laughs> I think Becky. Was, I think that's what you were mouthing, right, Heather? All right, I can read lips pretty good. Um, <clears throat> but uh, please see them, and, uh, and let's continue to be in prayer for that family. And of course, we'll have some prayer concerns uh, at the end of our service. Um, I want to—I want to just begin again with a prayer this morning, and just ask God's blessing over this uh, over this section of Scripture that we're going to jump into that we're going to call Quail Quail Season this morning. With Father, may we just all uh, get out of your way. With distractions, with hardness of heart, with callousness, with pride. May we check all that, remove it, lay it down, just let you work. Help us to see how good you are today. Help us to see who you are more clearly. Let's walk in that truth as we leave this place this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, typically I don't even think about birthdays anymore, right? You get over forty and you don't really think about it. But this year, for some reason, I, in less than a month or so, I turn forty-six years old, and I. And for some reason that's in my head, I, I think probably most of all because it's the backside that I'm on the way towards 50 now. And that, I don't know what's the deal with that, we'll have to maybe go see a therapist about all that over the next four years. But I was thinking about that this week and I ran across this article that gave me a little early birthday present. The, the, the headline of the article was this, Unhappiness Peaks at 47 Years Old. Right? It was a study done of over 132 different countries in which the, the researcher and author of this very big article discovered that most people peak in their unhappiness right around 47 and a half to 48 years old. So I took this as a 45-year-old, almost 46-year-old, as good news, because sometimes I feel pretty miserable, and I'm like, "Well, maybe that's about all to turn around, right? So I want you to know this today, that if, you're, that if you're in your 40s, hang in there, right? right? If you're in your 20s and 30s and you're, and you're miserable already, really hang in there. <laughs> and if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s and you're still miserable, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> right? Oh, you know, happy birthday to me, I guess, I don't know, in a, in a, in a few years. Now, it's no surprise to us that that we as humans can be quite unhappy people. Misery loves company. Life and circumstances have a way of piling up on us. Health and finances and stress and work. And even the season of the year can pull us down. Summer gets me every year. I am not a summer, hot weather person. Now, some of us hide this misery well. Others, not so much. But sometimes even I think misery can be pretty enjoyable. It can be funny, right? Take, take for instance, some Amazon reviews. I want to read you guys here. I left them up on my row here. But if you've ever read Amazon reviews, some of the misery that people, I think, comedians write here, this one's pretty good that they share on here. This one's for some scissors that this lady, Kelly, gave a five-star review to, and you've probably already read it, but she says what can you say about scissors? They're scissors. You put one blade on either side of something you wish to cut, squeeze, and the handles come together, and it cuts. Super sharp, too. They cut almost as precisely as my father's comments about my career path. (laughs) That's sharing a little misery, right? Now, this one's strange. This is a uh, UFO detector that I guess you can buy uh, along with your foil hat on, on Amazon. And, uh, it says, one star is too much for this product, UFO Detector. It says, I don't know if this is a scam or if mine was broken, but it doesn't work. I'm still getting abducted by UFOs on a, day, on a regular basis. <laughs> and then this was, the great, this was one of the greatest reviews ever from a children's book that's called Where is Baby's Belly Button? And this one's a little long, but it's worth the read here. Uh, you can't see, if you can't read the fine print, it says, do not buy this book. You can see the ending right on the cover. <laughs> and then it goes on to say this. This book is completely misleading. The entire plot revolves around finding baby's belly button. The title makes that much clearer from the beginning. However, I was disappointed because there is no mystery. There is no twist. Baby's belly button is right where it's supposed to be, on ba- baby's stomach right where it clearly shows you on the cover of the book. This plot is a complete mess as a result of its reliance on the mystery of where the belly button is. Everything falls apart the second you realize that the belly button was in plain sight all along. There is no conflict, no character development, and there's scarcely any plot. Whoever wrote this book must be in serious error in judgment. Because you would have to be an infant not to immediately understand where baby's belly button is. This is one of the worst pieces of literature I have ever purchased. (laughs) Oh, now that's funny. That's pretty good. Now, I don't know who has time to write those kind of comedic reviews on Amazon, but I would like to be friends with those people. That would be great. Now, on a more serious note, we do know that there are difficult times. And there's times that we feel seasons of discontent. And on a more serious note, we remember this guy, Robin Williams. This guy who on the outside was one of the most seemingly most joyful and funny people on the planet. He brought us laughter, and he had this talent on so many different levels to act and to, and to laugh, and he had this smile. But yet, as we found out after his suicide, he was a deep well of despair. A lot of people have written about Robin Williams since his death and they have said that he is an archetype for our culture. This world that we live in where 65% of us struggle with anxiety and depression. A world where we continually just turn our hearts towards these low doses of dopamine that we get by using our thumb like this to scroll. It's a world where most of us can feel this low grade level of constant dissatisfaction. And this morning I want to not begin that way to make us feel down, but to remind us that we do struggle with a lack of content. Have you felt it? I'm sure you have that unease. The dissatisfaction you feel with yourself and with others or with goals that you've never met or with your family or with relationships and even with here, Our relationship with God and with Christians and with the church. The Bible has a word for that. It's called the wilderness. It's called the desert. It's that in-between space between where we are and where we want to be. And our text this morning takes us into... The wilderness. The people of Israel have camped out at Mount Sinai for a year. And now God is leading them to the Promised Land. But between Sinai and the Promised Land is a desert. And along the way, that attitude of discontent starts to settle in and then slowly rise up. We pick it up in Numbers 11. I'm going to read a pretty big chunk of this going from 11.4 all the way to the end of the chapter. We need to hear this this morning, so hang with me. Here's what happens, starting in verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it into loaves. It tasted like something made with olive oil, this thing they picked up every morning. We pick it back up in verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord in response to their desire for food, for meat. He said, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you so that you put the burden of all these people on me? God's response, we pick up in verse 18 to their desire for something other than manna to eat. He says, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you'll eat meat, the Lord heard you when you will. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not only eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have welled before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? And then the chapter almost ends here in verse 31 with this miracle of meat. Now a wind came out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up two cubits deep, which is around 30 to 36 inches around the camp. As far as a days walk in any direction, all that day and night and all the next day, all the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread out them out all around the camp. Now thanks for following along with that. Um, there's plenty here in the text for us to talk about this morning. But the main thread and the main idea of this part of the book of Numbers centers around dissatisfaction, around discontent, the way things are. We always seem to have something to say about the way things are. But complaint and grief exist in the absence of gratitude. The people have stopped being grateful for manna, so what rises up in them is complaint and grief. Now this passage is great. There's so much here, but it really comes alive when we discover that this is not the first time that the people have cried out for me. Numbers 11 has a sister passage back in the book of Exodus. And Numbers 11 is not a repeat of that story, telling the same story. It is a new story of them repeating their complaint. And I want you to see this on the screen, the difference. I hope you can see that. In Exodus 16, 1-35, you have the same exact story that you do in Numbers 11, 1-35. There's parallels. There's a leaving. In, Num- in Exodus, they-, they depart from Elim. In Numbers 11, they set out from the mountain. In Exodus 16, they grumble. In Numbers 11, they grumble and complain. They long for food in both. They want meats. They talk about pots of meats that they had in Egypt. They talk about fish and garlic and leeks and all that that they used to have in Numbers. God, in Exodus, gives them the first manna. And then they also get quit in both passages. (coughs) Now it's hard to overlook the similarities that's going on, but where there is one little difference in the passages is where the actual message is. It's where, no pun intended, it's where the meat of the passage is. Because the difference is, is that in Exodus when they cry out for food, they have nothing. But in Numbers when they cry out for food, they have nothing but man. God has done this before. And they are acting as if he can't do it again. This isn't their first quail season. Now this type of cycle of discontent and dissatisfaction is asking the question, what happens when the new car smell wears off? What happens when those new clothes you thought would make you feel good about yourself have already been worn you see this. In fact, it comes out in Exodus and Numbers very clearly when you track how the people felt about this gift of manna. Exodus 16.31 says, it, this is when manna appears for the first time. The people of Israel called the bread manna, which means, it's a great Hebrew word, it means, what is it? <laughs> it's a, we found this stuff, what is it, Right? It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Now notice the difference here. When you get into Numbers 11, it tasted something like made with olive oil. What happened? Olive oil doesn't taste like honey. Go home and take a teaspoon of each today and see, see, see the difference, right? And then finally in Numbers 21, look at this. This complaint comes up and they say, there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. You know what they're talking about? Man. And the Hebrew word for miserable is tasteless. So what you have in this section in Numbers that we've been in this week is the people getting free bread from heaven every day, rain down, falling like dew, so appearing for them miraculously every morning over these years. And it goes from honey to olive oil to tasteless. And this, of course, highlights for us this morning two inconvenient truths, church friends. And so when we become disconnected and dissatisfied, the first truth we know is that the sweetness of God can turn easily into bitterness. What was once pleasing and full and enough and we'd say, God, that is amazing, that is awesome, over time, in the absence of gratitude, becomes bitterness. And if you've wondered why that is, that actually leads us to truth number two is that we're we're leaky people. I've shown you all this before, but this is the way the humans work, right? God comes along. This is us. This is God. And He fills us with all this goodness and His presence and His Holy Spirit It's poured out into us. But we don't stay filled, do we? We're leaky people. We start draining out. That one prayer that you prayed, that one moment, that that retreat you were on, that camp you were on, it's not enough. Sometimes we barely leak, and other times we we really, right? We pour, right? That's because we have this level of discontent and dissatisfaction in us so that the sweetness of God turns to bitterness. It's our capacity for increasing dissatisfaction that we see in Numbers 11, the actual response of God. I don't know if y'all got a kick out of the response of God this week when we were reading it this morning or when you read it this past week. Is that they want quail and they got quail, right? There is some humor going on here because God says, you want it, you got it, right? I'm going to give you so much that it's going to get up to your knees a mile wide in any direction. It's going to be so much quail. So much that every person, even the least of them, went out, and the text says that they gathered up 10 omers. Now, 10 omers brought around and converted to today's poundage would be around 1.5 tons of quail. It's about 3,000 pounds of quail that every one of them went home with that day. I asked uh, ChatGPT's sister AI service, to, uh, that, that does uh, gener- generates images I don't know if you guys are familiar with AI you can go to these websites and say generate me an image of so and so, I went to one of those and I put in generate me an image of 3,000 pounds of quail in a wheelbarrow and I wish I could show you the uh, I broke it it didn't work the AI was like what? and it gave me one big quail head in a, in a, in a wheelbarrow it looked really stupid so I didn't download it so I didn't give it to you this morning but I, I wanted to get that picture of what would 3,000 pounds of quail look like? That's what God is doing. What, what, the, what is being told here? What God is doing in this passage by giving Him 10 omers apiece is He's saying, if you are here to be discontent and consume God, you will never be full. You want quail? The message is God will give you so much, even of a good thing, Because he wants you to learn that it's not the best thing. That's the message here. Consumers of God are never full because that's their nature to consume. But when we turn our hearts towards God and we learn to be consumed by God, we're always satisfied. Think about this in our world. Alice and I went on a walk last night at the at the bridge after dark and we were just talking about how often I want so much more I want, I want, I want and I got to thinking about this and I thought about it all night it's not money I want it's not money I need it's peace and security that only God can provide I really want. it's not those new clothes that you want It's a confident identity in who God made us. That's what you really want. It's not success that you need of material things and more or success in the eyes of neighbors and friends. It's contentment that you in Christ are in That's what you really want. It's not sex that people really want. Intimacy that they really need. That's a principle, right? See, consumers are never full, and so I wanted to think—I want y'all to think with me this morning—just about a principle. It's a principle I desperately need in my life. It's an axiom of scripture that comes up everywhere, and it's—it's it's the reverse of discontent. And. and Maybe we call it a remedy or we call it a solution, but in Scripture what we see is this, is that God cares about all of it more than you do, more than I do, more than we do. Numbers 11, the problem is, is the people have forgotten that God cares more about them than they even care about themselves. They've already got quail before. Why couldn't they trust him just to do it again? Man, it used to taste like honey, but now we've eaten so much of it, it's no good anymore. This church used to really fill me up, but now I've gotten into a rut. What happened? What if we could trust that God is at work and cares about it all more than we do, even when we're unaware? Wouldn't that be the solution, the remedy to our dissatisfaction? To grow in this sacred trust that God is going to care for each of us and give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. That's what Scripture declares over and over. And I want to relate that to when I was dating Allison in college. We weren't yet engaged, but you know, you're looking for good things to do, and and Friday nights go out on dates, and so Alice and I somehow got involved in the 90s swing music video, uh, video, swing music dance craze. You guys remember swing music? Zoot, Suit Riot, and the, uh, you know, big band music. That was a, a trend for like three years, and then for the love of all things good, it went away. It was a good thing, right? Well, during that craze was when Alice and I were dating, and uh, so we started going to swing dance lessons on Friday nights on OSU's campus. I know some of you are like, well, how are you a preacher? You used to be a swing dancer, right? (laughs) Whatever. All right. I know. We were heathens, okay? Well, you wouldn't think it was sinful if you ever saw me try to swing dance, (laughs) okay? Because that's all you really need to know about. it. I was terrible. I have zero rhythm. The basic swing dance steps, which I'm not going to show you this morning, are so easy. It's four little bump, 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 bump. That's all you got to do. And I could not do it. So whatever we were doing, we learned swing dance and we learned the cha-cha we learned the rumba uh, over these three or four weekends that we went to this thing. What I figured out is that it was a lot easier just to let Allison lead, because she could actually dance. So we'd be doing some different uh, dance moves, and I'd be like, you just lay it out. Because I could look down at her feet, and I could, I, could do, I could go, okay, if she's about to step on me, that means I need to step back, right? I could watch that. I could make that happen, right? But that, of course, is not the way it was supposed to work. Of course, with swing dance, you're supposed to do some moves. Allison couldn't pick me up. I couldn't, I couldn't be like, oh, yeah, whoo, right? <laughs> couldn't do that. So what I would do each week is I would try my best, I'd get out of rhythm. I was so grateful for a girlfriend at the time who later became my wife that would just laugh at me, and she didn't dump me because she was like, well, he can't dance. Deal breaker, you know. She didn't do that. But we'd move on. I remember red-faced, every once in a while, the, the instructor would stop the music and go, now, what was your name again? You need to do it this way. And I'd be like, it's Jake, <laughs> right? But here's the mistake I was. And this relates back to what we're talking about, God caring more than do. See, dancing isn't really about who's in the lead. And dancing really isn't all about being led. It's about learning the rhythm, making adjustments to that rhythm, and improvising along the way. If you ever watch good ballroom dancers, or you're like my mom who got into a kick of watching Dancing with the Stars a few years ago... I learned this watching that show with my mom, that ballroom dancers are good, not because they know the steps, but because they know how to dance. They know how to lead when they need to lead, but they also know how to be led. And see, that's the exact mistake I made. We made it with God. Our discontent is often connected to this great desire to always try and lead. Or, to put it in my terms, or with what's on the screen, It's this desire in us to think that I care about my life and I care about my family and I care about you and I care about this church more than God does, which is not true. It just isn't true. God cares about your marriage and he cares about your kids and he cares about your relationship with other people and he cares about your work and he cares about your future more than you do. So the pressure is off. If you don't believe me this morning, here's some scripture for that. Matthew 23. Jesus says, God longs to gather us like a hen protects her chicks. In Matthew 11, 28-30, Jesus tells us that He has a yoke for us, His way of life that is easy and less burdens. In Matthew 28, 18-20, He says to us, I am with you always to the very end. Of this age. In John 14. Jesus teaches that the spirit. That he will send will be. Our advocate. Our paraclete. Our counselor. In Ephesians 1. 3-5. Paul writes that. We in Christ. Have been chosen in him. And we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. In Luke 12.32, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is a gift. And God is not just giving it, he actually says God is pleased to give this gift to his people. And then in Romans 2.4, he says God's kindness is there to enable you to repent. To always be changed, to always be evolving. To borrow Brandon's words, his very good words from this morning. See, the great news, guys, is this. Is the passage, these passages replay the promise that we don't have to convince God to be with us and we don't have to convince God to love us and you don't have to convince God to grow you as a disciple because He cares about it all more than you. So let's go back to our dancing analogy. There's a lot of good analogies out there about God taking control, right? Uh, Some are good, some are bad. I I won't give you my opinion on some of them. You know, let go and let God, we say. You see that on t-shirts and Christian, you know, swag out there. Jesus take the wheel was popular because of Carrie Underwood. Jesus, I'm not going to sing that, right? It always was like, anyway, I'm not going to say anything about that. Uh, Frog, fully rely on God. And those are all fine. But I want to give us a different thought on that this morning. I was thinking about that this week. And letting go and letting God is great. And Jesus' take the wheel is fine. And fully relying on God, yes, of course we need to do that. But, but here's the problem. Discipleship is not a drive, nor is discipleship completely passive. It isn't just, well, hands off, I'm just going to hang out back here, God, you take care of everything. Discipleship includes Participation. It includes the participation of the whole self, the full self, right? What do we start worship with? Hero Israel, the Shema, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and mead, strength, right? Your are with all of who you are. That's what discipleship includes. So to beat dissatisfaction, I think discipleship is more like a dance. It's not hands on. It's not hands off. In fact, I think discipleship is hand in hand. It's not Jesus take the wheel, it's Jesus take my hand. It's not God here, I'm letting go, it's God, no lead me. It's hand in hand. God will you lead. And then I in turn will follow the rhythm of your grace. I trust you. I trust because I believe that you know about it, you care about it, more than I ever can. And that's what Israel forgot in the desert. Desert places are hard. If you've been in a liminal space in your faith or in your job or at home or in your marriage, in a transition in your life from junior high to high school or high school to college, you know those desert places are tough. But there's so much power found in simply saying to God, take me by the hand. Discipleship is hand in hand. So we trust that God is doing something in every one of us. I trust that He's doing something in you. When I get frustrated with church work or frustrated with my own relationship with God or I get frustrated with where things are, it's not my job to figure it out. It's not my job to cry out and complain to God either. It's my job to trust that God cares more about it than even I do. And then follow him wherever you go. If you need that this morning, if you need us to pray over that, we offer the invitation to you. Let's stand together. Let's I care not to- Oh